Good morning, everyone. Isn't it an absolutely beautiful day in a most beautiful place? Right, Isaiah 40. Oh, and I have to apologise. I'm reading from the NIV, but it's a later version, so hopefully it's not too different. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand a double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Good morning again. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for the welcome. Uh, we are going to be working our way through 1 Peter over the weekend uh, in two talks this morning and then two again tomorrow morning. So I hope you've been looking forward to that. Uh, and if you get a chance over the weekend, a great thing to do would be to sit down and read through the whole letter from cover to cover. It's only five chapters. It won't take you very long and you'll get a sense of uh, the message that God has for us through the book. Uh, there's an outline for this first talk, I think, on page six of the booklet. So if you'd like to follow along, that'll give you a sense of where we're headed. Uh, it'd be good to have 1 Peter also open at chapter one there, the passage that was read to us. And how about I pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of your son, our Lord Jesus, from the dead. And so, Father, we look to you as your children and we long for you to feed us with the pure spiritual milk of your word. And so we pray now as we come to this letter written by your servant Peter that you would quieten our hearts and open our minds and make us ready to hear what you have to say to us. Make us ready to feed on the good food of your word. And we pray, to, pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you don't expect to find yourself under attack on your birthday, do you? Especially not under attack from your older brother, and especially not when you're 10 years old. But that's what happened to my younger brother on his 10th birthday. Uh, I, being all of 12 years old, was in charge of the games, and we're playing pin the not tail on the donkey, pin the blaster on the rocket, as was appropriate for a bunch of 10-year-old boys. 
Uh, and my little brother went first, and so I blindfolded him up to make sure he couldn't see. He had the blaster ready to pin over on the rocket on the wall, and just to check that the blindfold was working, just to make sure he couldn't see at the top or the bottom or around the sides, I just you know, gave him a couple of flicks like this towards his face to make sure he didn't flinch. Except I was a little bit too enthusiastic, and rather than just a flick in front of his eyes, I gave him a punch to the nose, and there in front of all of his best mates from school, he landed flat on his back on his birthday. <laughs> that was 30 years ago, and he hasn't let me forget it. You don't expect to be under attack like that, do you, on your birthday? And I wonder if we in the Australian church have found ourselves in something of a situation like that in recent years. Under attack, not ready for it, and a little bit shocked by it. Certainly it's felt like that to me in the last little while. When you look around the world in the last few years, we've seen shocking pictures of ISIS beheading Christians on the beach. We've heard reports of a gunman walking into a church in Charlestown in South Carolina just a couple of years ago and brutally murdering nine people as they sat there in Bible study. And differently, but with huge long-term consequences, we heard of the US Supreme Court legitimising same-sex marriage for all 50 states in the US, effectively declaring that the Christian view of marriage in the US is now out of date. And then closer to home in Australia, we've seen the Victorian Andrews government introduce legislation designed to limit the freedom of religious organisations to employ people on the basis of shared beliefs. And then the New South Wales Department of Education banning three Christian books because they taught the Christian view of sexuality. And then, of course, most recently we've seen the redefinition of marriage in our own country in the midst of loud public debate, which often presents the Christian view as not merely quaint or peculiar, but as repressive. Have you heard that? And narrow-minded and bigoted and even dangerous. And maybe closer to home still, there are things going on in your own life with work colleagues or in your extended family or at school, conversations you're having where you're faced with ridicule or isolation because you belong to Jesus. For generations, the church in Australia has enjoyed an honoured, even a privileged position in Australian society. But all of that is changing. And I wonder if we're now starting to feel a little bit like my little brother on his birthday. I don't want to make too much of this, of course. We're not being persecuted. I think that's too strong a word for our situation. In many ways, by God's grace, we in the Australian church still enjoy a positive relationship with the government, uh, with the culture, with society. Uh, certainly, we're not suffering physical violence like many of our brothers around and sisters around the world face. So we're not being persecuted. That, that's too strong a word. But we are under increasing pressure, I think. The church in Australia is increasingly marginalised and presented as foolish and even seen as dangerous. So often the words that are being spoken about us in the church condemn us. The church is outdated. Have you heard that? Irrelevant. On the wrong side of history. Narrow-minded. Bigoted. We're increasingly a church under fire. But that's nothing new. So were the churches to which Peter was writing in the first century. Uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers, or exiles you might have, depending on your translation, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, 
Or skip down to verse 17. Live your lives as strangers or exiles here in reverent fear. Or flip over to chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers, uh, or again, it could be exiles in the world, abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. You see, this situation for the church is nothing new. Peter is probably writing to Christians who've been expelled from Rome. Uh, We can reconstruct the situation quite accurately, in fact. It seems most likely these are the Christians that the Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled from Rome when he expelled all of the Jews from the capital city in AD 49. And so they were exiles in a very literal sense. They'd been kicked out of their hometown uh, and now they had relocated to these cities in what we call modern Turkey, uh, cities in Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia and Pontus and Galatia. These Christian believers had been sent there by the emperor, cast out of the capital city, to be part of Roman colonies in each of those places, where the task was to set up Roman ways of doing things according to Roman values, worshipping the Roman gods. And these Christian believers didn't fit because they worshipped the one true God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been executed as a rebel against Rome. At worst, we learn from chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that these Christians were being persecuted. They were being insulted for just bearing the name of Christ. They were suffering just for being Christians. And we learn from chapter 3, verse 15, that some of them had been dragged before the authorities to explain why they didn't participate in worship of the emperor and the Roman gods or in the immoral practices that went along with that kind of worship. And so these brothers and sisters of ours to whom Peter is writing lived in the world where the Christian message was seen as foolish. The words spoken about them often condemned them. They were outsiders. They were seen as corrupt. One Roman writer said of the early Christians that they were atheists. Strange thing to say about Christians, don't you think? But atheists, why? Because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. Another early Christian writer described them as people who hated the human race. Again, strange thing to say about Christians, you'd think. But they hated the the human race because they didn't go along with the Roman values. They didn't toe the the party line. And so Peter says they're undergoing, chapter 1, verse 6, all kinds of trials. Or chapter 1, verse 7, they're being refined by fire. Or chapter 4, verse 12, they're in the midst of a painful trial. Or again, some translations will say they're in the midst of a fiery ordeal. This is a letter to churches under fire. And we all react differently when we come under fire, don't we? Some of us want to fight. Maybe that's you. Some of us want to retreat into a little Christian ghetto. Some of us tend to compromise. Some of us want to give up on the faith. But God, through Peter here, shows us a better way. Peter, of course, knew exactly what it meant to be tested and to fail Remember Peter around the fire at Jesus' trial? And yet he'd come through it and had been restored. And so over the weekend we're going to work our way through his letter to these churches under fire. And we're going to focus on what God says to them and how he encourages them and us by reminding them of the new birth that he has given us in Christ, that's this morning, the new community that we have in the church, that's a little bit later, the new life to which God calls us tomorrow morning, and the new leadership that God has provided for us in the Lord Jesus. That'll be the second talk tomorrow morning. 
And the good news for us in this first talk this morning is that even if this old world is against us, God has chosen us for new birth into a new family and to be heirs of a new world. So those are my three points. And we're going to spend more time in the first one, if you look at the outline there, uh, and uh, we'll see what God has to say to us as a church under fire. So first, God has given us new birth. Uh, In fact, this whole first chapter is about the new birth that God has given us in Christ. It's there at the beginning, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's there again at the end of the chapter, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And so since this theme of new birth runs all the way through the chapter, I want you to notice five things about this new birth that God has given us in Jesus. And the first thing to notice is that this new birth was something that God had planned before the creation of the world. Peter writes in chapter 1 verse 1 to God's elect, God's chosen ones, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. When a young couple, perhaps newly married, plan to start a family, often there's a bit of planning ahead, right? They discuss it, they pray about it, perhaps they read some parenting books, they buy some necessary items, they see a doctor, they may plan for several weeks, or months, or perhaps even years. But here's Peter saying that God our Father planned to give us new birth in his Son in the long ages of eternity past. Even before he created the world, he looked ahead, not weeks or months or years, but ages and millennia, and planned to give new birth to his children, setting his heart on each and every one by name, choosing them and loving them, even before they came to be. You see the encouragement that is for a church under fire? Uh, This world may reject you, Peter says, But long ago, God determined to choose you. He set his love on you. He chose to give you new birth. And so notice, second, God did not choose to give this new birth because of anything in you. He didn't choose you because he foresaw your faith. He didn't look into the future and see that you would trust in him. He didn't choose you because of your obedience or because of your perseverance. He didn't choose you because you were any better than the rest. He chose you purely, verse 3, in his great mercy. It's God's mercy that gives you new birth. He chose you purely because he is kind, because he is generous, not because of anything in you. And yet he chose you before the ages began. And so notice third that this new birth is to a new life that is full of hope and promise. He's given us new birth, verse 3, into a living hope. The media will have you believe that Christianity is on the way out. Do you get that vibe? I'm sure you've picked it up. Sometimes it seems like the church's cause is futile, that there's no future for us, that we're dead in the water. And that's certainly the kinds of things that are being said about the church these days. In the marriage debates last year, the church was on the wrong side of history. You heard that line? 
but they couldn't be further from the truth because he has given us new birth into a living hope. You see what Peter is saying here. Though Rome has cast you out and sent you away from the centre of the empire, though you now occupy a marginalised place in society, though it seems like the cause of your churches is futile, God's new birth gives you hope that has a future. A living hope. A hope that won't disappoint you. Our future as God's people is secure. And that's because, fourth, he's given us this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 3. If you're being rejected by Rome, Peter says, that's nothing new. Rome rejected your Lord before he rejected you. He was mocked and spat on and ridiculed and crucified by Roman authorities. But that didn't stop God's plan. Because though they put him to death, God raised him from the dead. He's given you, and he's given you now new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the hope that God gives us is living because it's grounded in Jesus' resurrection, the living one. And that means the world around us will not have the final say on the church. The world around us does not determine the future of the church. The world around us can do what they like and say what they like about the church, but even if God's people are killed for Jesus' sake, that can't stop God's plan because we worship the God who raises the dead. You see, the hope that God gives to his people is a living hope, a real and substantial hope, because it's the promise of sharing in Jesus' resurrection life into eternity. And all of this, Peter says, fifth and finally, has come to us through the good news, through the gospel that was preached. Verse 23, you have been born again, how? Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter's here quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, the passage that was read for us earlier, the passage that begins, Comfort, comfort my people. And if you go back and read in Isaiah, you'll realise that God spoke those words through the prophet Isaiah to his people in the Old Testament when they were languishing where? As strangers, as exiles, having been cast out of the promised land in Babylon. And God spoke to them as he now speaks to to the churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. God spoke to them as he now speaks to the churches in Port Macquarie and Hornsby, where I come from, and across New South Wales, this word of comfort. This word of comfort, Peter says, which Isaiah announced ahead of time, which has now come to us in all its fullness through the gospel, through the good news that was preached to us. Yes, this old world may be against God's people. There's nothing new in that. This old world has been against God's people from the very beginning. So don't be surprised if you're suffering now in all kinds of trials. But cling on to this. In his great mercy, God our Father has chosen you for new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so I hope you can see what that means. It means that we don't need to look to the world around us for affirmation. It means we don't need to look to the world around us to give us a sense of legitimacy 
or belonging or meaning or purpose. We don't need to look to the world around us to give us the nourishment we need because our Heavenly Father, who has given us new birth through his Son, will give us all we need. And so, Peter says, look to your Heavenly Father for your identity. Look to your Heavenly Father for the nourishment that you need. Look to your Heavenly Father to feed you. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. I don't know how much you know about newborn babies. Some people perhaps haven't experienced the joys of having a newborn baby in the house. Some people have experienced it long ago and have forgotten what it's like. Uh, in my life, I've had five newborn babies in the house in the last 13 years. And it's fairly fresh in my memory. When a newborn baby wakes up at 2am in the morning, you know about it, right? The whole house knows about it. In fact, it feels like the whole neighbourhood <laughs> knows about it. <laughs> the, the baby can't sit up. The baby doesn't know its name. He can't talk. He can't walk. He can't control his bowels. The baby is almost entirely useless, except he knows one thing. He knows that he needs milk. And he knows how to get it by screaming for it. And so Peter says, like newborn babies, crave, cry out for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. What's the pure spiritual milk he's talking about? Well, that's the good news that was preached to you. The good news that Peter has just mentioned. The word of God's grace to us in Jesus. This old world is against you. And part of the way it gets to you is through the words that it speaks. It speaks words of distraction. Find your identity in what you buy. Find fulfilment in new sexual experiences. Find purpose in your own autonomous self-determination. I did it my way. It also speaks to your words of condemnation. The church is outdated. The church is irrelevant. Christians are narrow-minded. So if the church under fire, like for a newborn baby, drinking in God's pure spiritual milk is not a luxury. It's a matter of survival. We need to hear the word that matters, don't we? The word from our Heavenly Father, the word of his grace, the word through which we've been born again, the living and abiding word of God, the good news that was preached to us when we first came to believe. And we need to hear it again and again and again because that's the word that will grow us up and enable us to stand tall as God's people like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You see, just as the Christian life begins when you're born again by hearing and believing in the good news, the Christian life continues as you grow up to maturity by hearing and believing in the good news. You never move on from this pure spiritual milk. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you need to cry out for it and crave the pure spiritual milk because you never graduate from the gospel. You never move on to higher things. You never leave the pure spiritual milk of God's grace to us in Christ behind. No, you keep drinking it all your life. You need it every day. Because it's only in savouring that good news that we'll survive in the faith and grow up into salvation. So how are you going at drinking in the pure spiritual milk that God gives us in his word? 
Maybe like me, you need to pray and ask our Heavenly Father to give you a new craving for it, to make you like that newborn baby crying out in the middle of the night. (laughs) Give me that milk. This old world may be against you, but here's the good news. God, our Heavenly Father, has given us new birth. That's the first point, and I told you we'd spend the most time on it, but there's another couple of things we're going to look at more briefly here. Uh, It's because we can't leave this passage behind without noticing that new birth also means new belonging in a new family. Peter writes to God's elect, chapter 1, verse 1, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 3, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us new birth. And so he encourages us, verse 14, as obedient children. Do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But instead, verse 17, call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially. You see the family language that pervades this whole chapter? New birth means we belong to a new family. But of course the world around us offers family-like belonging too. Uh, And that was no different in Peter's day. Like many of the great despots down through church history, the Roman emperor presented himself as a father figure. Pater Patriae, he called himself. Father of the empire, father of the nation. Look to me, the emperor said, and I'll give you the nourishment you need. Look to me and I'll give you the sense of belonging and identity and direction and purpose that you crave. But in casting out these Christian believers from Rome, sending them away into exile, he revealed exactly what kind of a father he really was. And in the same way, in our society, there are many groups and movements that family that they promise a kind of family, a community, a belonging, inclusion. Uh, and there's much good in many of them. Uh, we've been joining uh, this thing called Park Run. Anyone come across it? Uh, and it's a fantastic community organisation. There's a sense of belonging there. Uh, and it's a genuine good But when we cross the lines, when we fail to worship the gods of tolerance, the gods of any and every sexual indulgence, the gods of individual autonomy and self-determination, the gods that are worshipped in our society, then you find out what kind of belonging it really is. And you find out that you don't really belong. And you start to hear the word, you're out of date, you're irrelevant, you're narrow-minded, You're a bigot. That doesn't mean we withdraw. No, we've got to engage. That's where we're going tomorrow. And yet Peter wants to first encourage us. You may be cast out. And the Christians receiving this letter had been cast out. But God has taken you in. Verse 18. You know, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. No, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, Or defect. You see, God, your Father, has taken you in at great cost to Himself, at the expense of the blood of His Son. He's adopted you as His sons and daughters. That's belonging. That's a welcome. And so He helps us to live as His church under fire. There are two big temptations, aren't they? When we're aren't they? When we're a church under fire, we we can allow ourselves to be conformed to the world around us. Uh, Or we can turn on each other and allow the pressure from outside to fuel disputes within. Uh, But God has given us new birth into a new family and so neither of those is an option for us. 
And so first Peter says we need to learn to reflect the family likeness. As obedient children, verse 14, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. You know that game we play when a new baby's born? Uh, and, and everyone turns up, extended family and friends, look at the new baby and try to pick out, oh, is that grandma's nose? And yes, she's got uh, Auntie Betty's ears. And oh, I think that's dad's lips. And we, we try to find the family resemblance in the baby. And of course, the kid's its own person. There's a family resemblance, but, but the kid's its own person. Well, Peter is saying here, you've been given new birth into a new family. Uh, you are your own person, and yet there'll be a family resemblance. At least there should be. And so instead of being conformed to the world around us, we need to learn to reflect that family likeness. We need to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father who is holy. And so he says, be holy because I am holy. And so we take our cues for how to behave in the world, not from the world, but from our holy Heavenly Father who speaks to us in his word. And at the same time, second, we need to learn to love one another deeply. Because we all call on the same Father. Instead of turning on each other, we need to remember that God has given us new birth into a family together, as brothers and sisters. And so Peter says, verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply, from the heart. For you have been born again. And so, chapter 2, verse 1, Read yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. You see, when the church faces pressure from outside, one of the dangers is that it fuels rifts within and divisions inside. And so Peter says, be on your guard against that. Love each other earnestly. Get rid of everything that causes dispute and division amongst Christian brothers and sisters. Do whatever it takes to stick together as God's people. Because God has given you new birth together. This old world may be against you, but here's the good news. God has chosen you for new birth. And that means belonging in a new family. And that brings us to the last main point. That God our Father has also chosen us for a new inheritance. To be heirs of a whole new world. Come back to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. What we inherit from the world and the culture around us is ultimately futile. Uh, yes, because of God's common grace, there's much good in it to be enjoyed now and be thankful for, uh, but ultimately, it's empty. It won't last. So Peter says in verse 18, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Whether it's the way of the Greco-Roman religions with its superstitious beliefs and meaningless rituals, or the way of the Jewish tradition of the elders with its way of smothering God's grace and turning God's good law into a burden, or whether it's the way of the Australian culture with its complicated mix of anything goesism, rejection of authority and intolerance towards religion. 
what we've inherited from our forefathers, is futile. It's going nowhere. To follow the way of the world around us is to end up in a dead end, but not the inheritance promised by our Heavenly Father. He has given us new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And that only makes sense, doesn't it? New birth into a new family brings with it an inheritance. In fact, our Heavenly Father promises us, as Peter says in his second letter, nothing less than a part in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home. That's 2 Peter 3. He promises to cleanse this old world with the fire of his judgment, to remove all that's evil, to remove all the futile ways that are corrupted by sin and to make it new again. And so, Peter says, this inheritance is utterly secure. Verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you. God's got it stored up and ready to be revealed, he says, verse 5, in the last time. Peter is talking about the revelation of our inheritance that Jesus will bring with him when he returns, verse 7, when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so he says, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, God's inheritance for his children is kept safe in heaven. And Jesus is going to bring it with him when he comes to make everything new. My mum had a habit when we were kids of buying Christmas presents very early. She's an organised woman. September, October, she starts stocking them away. And there was a particular cupboard in in mum's bedroom, a really high cupboard, (laughs) that if mum was out, you might be able to sneak into and open the cupboard and get a peek, but you couldn't reach. (laughs) And so you'd catch the edge of a bit of paper and you'd start to wonder what it might be, but you'd know there were presents up there from September, October, November, December, (laughs) December 1, December 2. You'd be waiting until December 25, presents stored up with your name on it, (laughs) tantalisingly kept secure in the cupboard (laughs) to be brought down and unwrapped and enjoyed on the 25th of December. And so, Peter says, there's an inheritance for you, Christian believer, that God has kept in heaven for you, with your name on it, waiting and ready to be brought down and unwrapped and enjoyed when Jesus comes again. But it's not Christmas yet, is it? We're still waiting. And so Peter says, hang on, persevere through your trials because God is perfecting you through them. He continues, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, it's not Christmas yet. We, we haven't yet received the fullness of our inheritance as God's children, and so there will be trials. But the most beautiful reminder here is that the trials too are part of God's perfect plan for his children. They're the way he's testing our faith, Peter says. Like fire tests a precious metal and burns away the dross. God is testing our faith, burning away all the evil that still clings to us, all of the sin that we haven't yet left behind, so that in the end our faith 
may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus comes. You see, God is leading us through this time of fire. God is leading us through the trials that we face because his goal is to make us like his son, to make us like Jesus, to prove our faith genuine, just as Jesus' faith in his heavenly father was proved genuine through the trial of Gethsemane and the cross. And that teaches us that our heavenly father's goal for us is not first and foremost that we be healthy, but that we be holy, right? His goal for us is not first and foremost our prosperity, but our purity. His goal first and foremost for us is not our comfort, but our Christ-likeness. And I don't know about you, but I've still got a long way to go in all of those. And so he leads us through times of testing to purify us, to give us strength to persevere, to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. A pastor friend of mine uh, was speaking and he, he told about a time when his church was facing a severe financial crisis. And he told a story about one day he was praying with his wife, pleading that God would meet the church's financial needs. Uh, he prayed first, laid out his heart to God, and then his wife prayed. Except she prayed a very different kind of prayer. She prayed, Father, yes, please meet our needs, but not too soon. I stopped praying. He looked up. What do you mean, not too soon? We need it now. She said, well, maybe God's got something to teach us through this trial. Maybe there's a way in which he's leading us through it to perfect us in it. You say, she got it, didn't she? God, our Heavenly Father, has a wonderful inheritance for us in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home. But if we're going to be at home in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home, then we need to be righteous. And we're not there yet. And so he's leading us through trials to refine us and to perfect us so that our faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honour when the inheritance is revealed. One of my heroes is a guy named William Tyndale. You may have heard of him. He was the first to provide us with a full translation of the New Testament in English. Tyndale lived at a time uh, at the beginning of the Reformation in England in the 16th century when there was severe opposition to the good news about Jesus. Severe opposition to the true church. The Bible was only available in Latin and hardly anyone could read it. And Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English, but King Henry VIII didn't want it. A Bible that people could read was dangerous. It would cause sedition, he thought. And so he threatened anyone who would defy him with persecution and torture and death. But Tyndale, you see, had been given new birth. He'd heard the word of the gospel as a young man in Cambridge, uh, and he believed it. He'd been born again into a new hope, a living hope. And so he craved the pure spiritual milk. And so he learnt Greek. And he started translating the New Testament into English. And when King Henry found out, Tyndale fled to the continent. He fled for his life. And in fact, he never came back. Uh, he left for the rest of his life. He was a fugitive on continental Europe. 
in France and in Germany. He was an exile, a stranger, cast out. But he didn't give way to fear. He didn't allow himself to be conformed to the world around him. Now he knew he'd been ransomed from the futile ways of life that he'd inherited from his forefathers by the precious blood of Christ. He knew that God, his father, was also his judge, and so he lived out his days in reverent fear. Not so much fear of the King of England, though I'm sure there were moments when he feared for his life, but fear of the true King, his God and Heavenly Father. And so he persevered. He worked away in hidden locations, in back rooms, in printing shops, until he published first in dribs and drabs, and then finally all at once, the New Testament in English for the first time ever. That was 1526. We're nearly 500 years later. If you open up your NIV or your ESV or any modern English translation, something like 75% of the words that you read were first given to us by William Tyndale. What a legacy. What a boon for the gospel in the English-speaking world. He didn't stop there. He went on to teach himself Hebrew. There weren't theological colleges around to learn this kind of stuff, so he attached himself to synagogues, introduced himself to the rabbis, said, please teach me some Hebrew. He taught himself Hebrew and he started translating the Old Testament. He got all the way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He translated Jonah. And then Henry's men caught him. They kept him in prison uh, in the castle of Vilvoorde outside Brussels. They convicted him of heresy for translating the Bible. And on the 6th of October, 1536, he was executed by strangulation. Then for good measure, they stuck his body on a stake and burnt it. But you might have heard of his famous dying prayer, a prayer that showed how much he had been refined, how much he'd been purified through the trials that his heavenly father had led him through. It was a prayer that makes you think of Jesus' dying prayer on the cross. Father, he prayed, open the king of England's eyes. There he is praying for his persecutor as he dies. And who knows whether King Henry VIII's eyes were ever actually opened, but a couple of years later, turn around in policy, and Henry VIII sponsored a translation of the English Bible that made use of the work of William Tyndale. <laughs> so there's a man who lived as part of a church under fire. There's a man who knew the good news, that this old world was against him, but he knew that God had chosen him for new birth. And so he craved that pure spiritual milk. He knew that God had adopted him into a new family. And so he was learning to reflect the family likeness, living in reverent fear. He knew that God had promised him a new inheritance, nothing less than a whole new world. And so he learned to persevere through fiery trials, knowing that God, his father, was perfecting him through them. And that God had laid up for him in the new world an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Isn't that great news? I'm going to pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your wonderful, undeserved, abundant mercy and grace to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. That though in ourselves we are deserving of your condemnation, that though in ourselves we are corrupt 
and distorted. You, in your great mercy, have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, from the dead. That by his death on the cross for our sins, you have purchased us from the futile ways that we inherit from our forefathers. And instead, you have adopted us as your children, made us members of your family, promised us an everlasting inheritance in your kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we confess that none of that we deserve, that all of it comes to us by your free and unmerited grace and mercy. And so we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work in us by your spirit so that we would begin more and more to reflect the family likeness. That you would transform us, even as you lead us through various kinds of trials, that you would help us to persevere so that our faith might be proved genuine and result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus comes. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.